like for us to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple... And rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to meet together as your people. Lord, to sit under your word, to hear from you. And Father, all I have this morning are words on a page. But the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So, Lord, would you make these things real to us? Would you bring the cross before us this morning, Lord? Bring its scenes before us. Glorify your Son. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to speak to you this morning about these three hours of darkness in verse 45 that fell upon all the land. So something that Charles has spoken on before, but it's been, I think, a little over five years, almost six years now. Uh, and it's something that we need to be reminded of constantly. It's not like you, you can preach a couple of sermons on it and exhaust this. Two sermons can't exhaust it. Two hundred sermons can't exhaust it. And what we read about in these 
20 or so verses here in Matthew 27 is without question the single greatest event in the history of the universe. There's nothing else like it. It is at the same time both wonderful and terrifying, awesome and awful. It is the greatest demonstration of God's anger and wrath and at the same time the greatest demonstration of His immeasurable love. Words simply fail when it comes to describing the crucifixion of the Son of God. No adjective is great enough. No superlative is big enough to even begin to express what happened 2,000 years ago on this hill outside of Jerusalem. You almost get the feeling sometimes when you read these verses that it's better to not even try and talk about it. Like in some way, if you try to talk about it, it cheapens it in the way that it's better sometimes to simply stand in awe before a sunset or before a beautiful work of art and just admire it rather than try to discuss it or analyze it. But that's wrong. The crucifixion is not just a historical event that we gaze upon, but it's the central part of the gospel message that's meant to be proclaimed to all the world. You'll remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. There's proclamation. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So there's the crucifixion. So in Paul's mind, the central part of the gospel message, what he proclaimed in the gospel, of first importance in that gospel message was the fact that Christ died. So there's the cross right there. Also in Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, they didn't see him crucified with their physical eyes, but what Paul is saying, I preached the gospel to you, and I portrayed the Son of God to you as crucified. Again, he saw that as being bound up with his very gospel message, the crucifixion of the Son of God. So the proclamation of this awful event becomes the very power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So what I want to do this morning is just attempt to proclaim in a small way something of what these three hours of darkness meant. It's terrible and it's wonderful. May the Lord help us both to see and to feel what we ought to when we consider these verses. You know, if we can read a passage like this and we can just kind of go away, you know, well, I wonder what's for lunch today. Oh, man, I really need to get home and get the lawn mowed. I mean, there is something pathetically sinful about that attitude. And we can hear a sermon like this and we can read these verses and consider what happened here and just walk away cold and different. We're in desperate need of God's help this morning. So, here we go. A few things just in general before we get into the specifics. The first thing to notice here is that every aspect of the crucifixion, every aspect of this event that we read about happened according to a predetermined, predestined plan of God. Let me read it for you in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan, there it is, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And again in chapter 4, 
Christians are praying, and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's Acts 4, 27 and 28. So this is helpful for us to know before we even get into this passage because it tells us that nothing that happened on this day happened by chance. Everything had a purpose behind it because it all occurred according to the plan of an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Which leads to the second thing, that these three hours of darkness here that were experienced was a supernatural occurrence that was caused by God. In other words, it cannot be explained simply on the basis of natural phenomena, and that's what people have been trying to do for centuries. Unbelieving Bible scholars explain these things away just based on natural occurrences. For one thing, the darkness occurs at noontime, the brightest time of the day. The darkness occurs at noon. Also, it occurs during the Passover season, which is the wrong time of year for there to be any kind of an eclipse or anything that might explain it that way. Also, it lasts for three hours, which is longer than any kind of eclipse or other natural phenomenon could possibly last. In short, all we're saying is that this is a supernatural event. It's something that God caused. And then lastly, this darkness wasn't just a supernatural event, but it was a symbol, or more accurately, we could say a sign, meant to point away from itself and direct us to spiritual truth and spiritual realities. And we see that also in the life of Christ with his miracles. A lot of times his miracles are called signs that he did because he didn't just work these miracles because he was a nice guy. He worked the miracles in order to point to something. He was trying to tell people something with these miracles. They were signs, and signs point to something else. And this miracle of darkness is the same way. God doesn't just do these things to show off, to just demonstrate his raw power. He's trying to tell us something through this darkness. And the question is, what is he trying to tell us? What does this three hours of darkness symbolize? What does it point to? And this morning we're going to consider four different things that were present during the crucifixion of Christ, four different realities that this darkness tells us about and speaks to us about. First of all, It speaks to us about the reality of Satan and the powers of darkness that were at work during this time. Secondly, it speaks to the reality of God's judgment, particularly God's judgment against sin. Thirdly, it speaks of the agony experienced by God the Father in the crucifying of His Son. And fourthly, it speaks of the torment experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself in bearing sin. So those are the four things that we want to look at this morning, the four things this darkness points us to. First of all, the reality of Satan and the powers of darkness at work. For years, again, just like any other thing in the Bible, for years unbelieving scholars have been attempting to explain Judas's betrayal of Jesus in a kind of naturalistic or psychological way. But John 13 gives us a very different picture of things. In John 13, 2 It tells us that, quote, the devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. The devil put it there. The devil put it into his heart. And then in verse 27 of John 13, Satan actually enters into Judas. And that's the terminology it uses. Satan enters into Judas to carry out the act of handing him over. And then when the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders come out to take him to actually arrest him, 
Jesus says this in Luke twenty two fifty three. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and, literally, power of darkness. It's clear that there was an unusual amount of satanic and demonic activity taking place at the time of the crucifixion. And this is exactly what we would expect to see, as this was, this was the high point, this was the most important battle in the war that has been raging for centuries between the kingdom of God and Satan's kingdom of demonic darkness. Recall that before mankind was even created, Satan had already fallen. He had already led his rebellion against God, and he had already set up his own kingdom of darkness. So when God makes man in his own image and likeness to be his representative on the earth, Satan sees a golden opportunity to strike back at God, to get back at God, by tempting man to also rebel against the one who created him, just as Satan did. As we know, Satan succeeds and man falls, but the story doesn't end there. Instead of being the end, the fall is just the beginning of a war that would rage for not ten years, hundred years, but thousands of years. I mean, this is literally the battle of the ages between God and Satan. As God says in Genesis 3 that he would put enmity, hatred, between Satan and the seed of the woman, between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And this battle would rage down through the ages as God continued through various ways and covenants and promises to work out his purpose to redeem a people for his own glory. And we get different glimpses of this um, in the biblical storyline. Every once in a while you'll get a, a little glimpse of this battle. For example, when God is making that covenant with Abraham, a deep darkness descends upon Abraham and birds are coming down trying to, to mess the whole thing up and to keep this covenant from being made. You have it again in, in the Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain getting the law and he comes down and the people are worshiping a golden calf. And over and over again in the Old Testament, you see the people of God being led astray to worship demonic idols. You see it again with David. It says David incited, or I'm sorry, it says Satan incited David to number the people. You see it with Daniel in the hindrances to his prayers. But this war would take on an intensity such as it had never known before when 2,000 years ago God himself became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. No more did Satan have to try and strike at God through his creation. Now he could strike directly at God himself. There's a big difference between the two. He catches Jesus alone in the wilderness at a time when he is weary and starving. And isn't that always the case? He comes when you're weakest. He waits until you're weakest, and then he comes. Does the same thing with the Lord. He tempts the Lord with a ferocity that we can't even begin to comprehend. But walking by the power of the Spirit, Jesus passes the test, and Satan is defeated for the time being, but he departs only until a more opportune time. And that's what the Bible says. He departs for a time, yes, but only until he can seize his opportunity again. And that time would come just a few years later as Satan enters into Judas in order to betray, betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. I mean, think, think of the perverted joy and glee in the kingdom of darkness that was taking place at this time. I mean, finally, it looked like Satan was going to win. Jesus was going to die. God was going to die. God hangs on a cross. The land goes dark. And the Lord breathes his last and dies. Now, we need to let this sink in because we know how the story ends. 
But you got to remember, a lot of people didn't. I mean, those disciples, they had been told several different times that the Lord was going to rise again, but they didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. Their hopes were gone. The one that they had left friends and family and homes to follow was dead. Everything that they had hoped for, everything that they had dreamed for, gone in a moment. It looked like Satan had won. But as is always the case, it turns out that Satan ends up being nothing more than a tool in the hand of God used to accomplish his holy purposes. Satan thought he had won, but what he actually did was seal his own destruction. Three days later, Jesus rises victorious over all the powers of hell and darkness, rendering powerless him who had the power of death, disarming the demonic rulers and authorities, making a public display of them, triumphing over them through his death and resurrection. Satan may have won a battle, but God won the war. The hour of the devil's greatest triumph becomes the very means of his defeat. Secondly, this darkness speaks to us of the reality of God's judgment against sin. And the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, will use this thing of darkness to talk about the judgment of God. Let me just read some verses to you here. I'll give you the references. This is Exodus 10, 21 through 23. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another. I mean, you want to talk about a darkness. I mean, we, we, we know sometimes what it's like. Maybe it's you know, one or two in the afternoon and all of a sudden a storm comes blowing in and it just kind of gets dark outside. And it's even that's kind of scary sometimes, kind of eerie. Well, you're talking about a darkness where people couldn't even see each other. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. And then in Ezekiel chapter 32... Again, just trying to give you a feel for how the Bible uses this thing of darkness and ties it in with God's judgment. Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and 8, it says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Joel chapter 2. Verses 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this thing of the day of the Lord, a day of darkness... And then again in Amos, chapter 5, 18 through 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? 
even gloom with no brightness in it. Chapter 8, 7 through 10. It says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it a time of mourning for an only son. This is incredible. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Right here in this passage, you have tied together the earthquake, the sun being darkened, and the mourning as for an only son. And then lastly, in Zephaniah chapter 1, 14 through 18, it says this, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, the Old Testament speaks time and again of this great day of the Lord, a day that would be a day of wrath, distress, desolation, gloom, and darkness, as God judged his enemies, poured out his wrath on them, and made a complete end of them. And the people of God are waiting, are waiting. When is this day going to come when God comes and judges his enemies? When is the day going to come? But nothing happens. And the time of the Old Testament prophets comes to a close, and there's silence for hundreds of years. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, a voice comes crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Flee from the wrath to come. And then as a condemned man is hanging on a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem at noon, the whole land goes pitch black. Not for ten minutes, not for thirty minutes, not for an hour, but for three hours the land is pitch black. What was happening? What was happening was the day of the Lord had come but it had come in a way that no one expected. God was indeed judging and pouring out His wrath and making an end of sin, but instead of pouring out His wrath upon the sins of His enemies, He instead takes that sin of His enemies and places it upon His beloved Son. 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross. And He places that sin on His Son and He pours out His wrath and His anger on Him. The fierce wrath, the anger that was meant to be spent upon a multitude of people is instead concentrated upon a single man. 
In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we, the enemies of God, might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But don't miss this. The day of the Lord, in sense of a universal judgment, will come. It still is coming. Paul says it will come like a thief in the night. But until it does, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. For all who will repent and turn away from their sins and cling to the cross of Jesus Christ, they will find that the wrath of God has been satisfied on their behalf. God's anger has burned itself out at that cross, and whoever clings to it will be safe from the fires of God's wrath that are still coming. So again, this darkness speaks to us of judgment, judgment of God against sin. Thirdly, the darkness speaks to the agony experienced by God the Father. And this is something I don't think we would tend to think about. And I think it's partially because we tend to have a very warped perception of God in terms of what He experiences and feels. You know, we really don't think that God feels anything, if we're really going to be honest about it. We really don't think that He feels much or that He experiences much that he's not really affected by the, the typical emotions that we would have as human beings. But according to the Bible itself, God experiences pity, wrath, compassion, hatred, jealousy, grief, and joy. And we see this echoed in the life of Christ, who was the greatest representation of what God is like. But we see it represented in the life of Christ, who rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, drove money changers out of the temple in anger, was grieved at people's hardness of heart, and who wept bitterly at the tomb of Lazarus. So we need to have our minds renewed about what God is like and what God feels and what He experiences. We have to let the Bible speak to that and inform us. But not only does God experience real emotion, but He experiences emotion with an appropriateness and an intensity that we can't because of our sin. Don't don't miss this. Sin has wreaked havoc on our emotions. I mean, we're just a mess. We cry about things that should make us laugh, and we laugh about things that should make us cry. On top of that, we often don't feel the proper amount of emotion that we should feel about certain things. We don't hate sin like we should. We don't love righteousness like we should. And we all know what it's like to hear a, a really good sermon or to read a really wonderful passage of Scripture, and you just go away cold and unfeeling. I mean, there's something wrong with us. We're messed up. Our emotions are messed up. But that's not the case with God. He always feels the proper amount of emotion in terms of degree and intensity. Things that are worthy of hatred, He hates perfectly. Things that are worthy of love, he loves perfectly. Things that are worthy of being grieved over, he grieves over them perfectly. Again, there's no sin in him to mess up his emotions. And what event in the history of the universe called for more grief or more sadness than the crucifying of the Son of God? What must it have been like for the Father to see His only begotten Son go through what He went through. What must that have been like? Consider the account of Abraham, and we're familiar with this story. But Abraham and Sarah are married in the land of Haran. God calls them to go forth from there. 
And as most young married couples do, they begin to think about having children. But years go by, and Sarah is unable to conceive. More years go by, and no matter how much they pray, no matter how much they cry, no matter how much they try, Sarah remains barren. They finally give up, and they resign themselves to the fact that they're never going to be able to have children. And then, and only then, when things are hopeless, the word of the Lord comes. At a certain time, the Lord would give them a son. And the whole thing is so unlikely because of their age that they just can't even believe it's true. But when Sarah is 90 years old and Abraham is 100 years old, Isaac is born. I mean, can you imagine the joy that Abraham experienced at the birth of that child? I mean, we just read right through that, you know. But can you, can you imagine what the joy that he felt? Finally, after all these years, after all the prayers, after all the tears, after all the weeping with his wife over her barrenness, finally a child is born. Several years go by and Abraham learns what it means to be a father as his love for Isaac and his joy over him grows and deepens more each day. And then the unthinkable happens. And let's pick it up right there in Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now, now listen to this, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. I mean, don't, don't miss that. Why does it say it that way? Why does it put it that way? You could have just said, take your son. Because it's pointing beyond Abraham here. It's pointing to the one who was really the only son whom God loved. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And then so Abraham rose early in the morning. I mean, think of what was going through his mind that night. I mean, surely he didn't sleep. There's no way he could have. But think of what was going through his mind. But he leaves in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Notice as we read through this over and over again, this repetition of his son, his son, and also the repetition of his father. Laid it on his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Do you see the repetition here? It's trying to tell us something. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, what's the point in reading about Abraham and then going back to this account of Abraham? It's clear, just as you read through it, that there's a lot more going on here than just testing Abraham. But what's the point? The point is this. Abraham was allowed, at the end of it all, Abraham was allowed to spare his son Isaac and to sacrifice the ram instead. But, beloved, God did not spare His only begotten Son. He did not spare His own Son, as Paul says in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son. Jesus was placed on that altar, and the Father drove the knife home into His chest, into the chest of His Son, His only Son, whom He loved. What must it have been like for the Father to do what He did? We sing that song, it says, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away. I mean, we can imagine in a small way maybe what it would be like to be called upon to do what Abraham was called upon to do. But nothing, I mean, nothing in our human experience in the whole realm of the world can begin to be compared to what the Father went through in giving His only begotten Son to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And not only to give His Son up and then walk away from the whole thing, but to actually be the one to crush Him on the cross. And that's the biblical terminology. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. To even begin to compare it to anything we could experience is blasphemous. So again, I say these three hours speak to us not only of the demonic darkness, not only of the judgment of God against sin, but also they speak to us of what the Father Himself was going through in the death of His Son. The grief, the pain, the loss. Lastly, the darkness speaks to us of the torment experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It speaks to us of the sufferings experienced by Christ. Now, when we think of the sufferings experienced by Jesus in the crucifixion, we can think of them in terms of two aspects. On the one hand, we have the, the physical side of the sufferings. You have the whipping, you have the scourging, the, the mocking, you have the beatings, you have the crown of thorns, along with the act of the crucifixion itself, the nails in the hands and the feet. The second aspect we could call the spiritual suffering. I'm not sure what else to call it better than that, but the spiritual suffering of what Christ went through, which would include the actual bearing of sin, absorbing the wrath of God against that sin, and then being forsaken by the Father, 
Now, in our circles that we usually run in, we typically downplay the physical sufferings of Christ in light of what he underwent spiritually, and I think it's right to do that. Obviously, in light of what he suffered spiritually, in light of bearing the wrath of God, in light of bearing the sin of his people, his physical sufferings pale in comparison to that. Not to mention that other people down through history have probably suffered worse physical punishment, just physical punishment, than what Christ himself suffered. That's not the big thing, and we know that. But one thing that I do want to point out, and something that we don't normally think about, is that Jesus didn't just suffer physically with the beatings and the scourging, but he suffered with knowledge. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the midst of the beatings, in the midst of the scourging, in the midst of the mocking, in the midst of the punches, the crown of thorns, Jesus suffered all of those things knowing that he was completely innocent. In fact, he is the only truly innocent person who has ever suffered in the history of the world. Think of that. Sometimes men will suffer unjustly for crimes that they haven't committed, that someone else has committed. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of suffering unjustly for something you didn't do, you're still suffering as those who are guilty of rebellion against God and a multitude of other sins. And according to Romans 1, people who suffer that way know that they deserve any punishment that they get. They know those things are worthy of death that they've done. So even if you suffer unjustly for one crime, you're guilty of committing a multitude of other crimes that you deserve to be punished for, greatest of which is your rebellion against God and not worshiping Him. But not so with Christ. Every slap... Every punch, every laceration from the whip was completely and utterly undeserved. And he suffered knowing that he was completely innocent. He suffered with a clean conscience, knowing that he had never done anything wrong. No one else in the history of the world has suffered that way. They can't. He suffered knowing that he was fully innocent. I mean, it's, in some ways it's unthinkable. It, you know... It's unthinkable to even th- to even ponder the fact that he suffered at all. I mean, the Son of God suffering. It's just it's it's unimaginable, and you can't make sense of it until you realize that he was suffering, not for his own sins, but as a substitute, suffering as a substitute in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. So that's one thing. Another aspect of what it meant for Jesus to suffer with knowledge is this. He suffered all these things. Again, we're talking about the physical sufferings. He suffered all of these things knowing that at any time he could call upon legions of angels to come and rescue him out of it. You'll remember that he said this back at his arrest, there when Peter draws the sword and cuts off the ear of the servant. Jesus rebukes him. He says, put your sword back into its place. This is in Matthew 26. Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions, a legion with six thousand, twelve legions of angels. That's a lot of angels. So again, this is different than the experience of any other person in the history of the world, and it would make the sufferings even harder just the physical sufferings now, it would make those even harder for Jesus to bear because he knew that at any moment he could put an end to them. He could get himself out of them if he wanted to. But he didn't for the sake of his people. 
And then we move into the cross itself. Jesus is crucified at approximately 9 a.m. The nails are driven into his hands and feet, and the mocking and the demonic onslaught continue for three hours. And you see that especially in Matthew's gospel. We read it earlier, but just mocking after mocking. The mocking and the onslaught continue for three hours. And then, three hours later, at noontime, the sun fails. And that's the language that one of the Gospels uses to describe this. The sun failing. The sun fails. And the land goes dark. Jesus begins to bear the judgment of God against sin. Isaiah 53.6 tells us that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I read this one earlier, but listen to the language that it uses. It says that Jesus was made to be sin. Made to be sin. What must it have been like for a sinless being, for God Himself, who hates sin with a perfect hatred, to then have sin placed upon Him? Think of the revulsion of His character. I mean, everything in Him crying out against it. Hating it. And then on top of that, to actually experience personally the wrath of God against that sin as it deserved. Now, a lot of times we think of the wrath of God in these kind of impersonal terms, you know. It's like this force or this fire or something like that. And really, we can't say for sure what it is, but I do know this. It's a personal thing. It's the wrath of God. It's not just wrath, but it's His anger. It's a personal anger. It's the anger of a person against another person. The darkness goes on. The wrath goes on. An hour goes by. More darkness, more wrath. Two hours go by. And then finally, three hours later, at 3 p.m., Jesus screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the suffering reaches its climax. In order to understand even a little bit, and we'll never understand the fullness of it, we can't, but in order to understand even a little bit of what this cry meant, we have to understand the relationship shared by the Father and the Son. So here's a question for you. When did the Father and the Son begin to enjoy the love and fellowship of one another? When did their relationship start? What do you think, Andy? Okay, it's kind of a trick question, isn't it? The reality is it never started. It never started. Think of that. It's a contradiction, but we know what it means, right? I mean, it never started because it's been going on from all eternity. The love, the joy, the fellowship, the intimacy. It never had a beginning because it stretches all the way back. Our minds can't even get around that. Another question, was there ever any interruption of this love and fellowship? What do you think? Was there ever any interruption of this relationship between the Father and the Son? Now we're thinking prior to the cross here. Was there ever any time when it was interrupted? No, never. Did the intensity of this love and fellowship ever increase or decrease? It's another tricky one, isn't it? Did it ever increase or decrease the love and the joy experienced between the Father and the Son? No, never did. 
So the Father and the Son had enjoyed this love relationship for all eternity. And again, we have to stop thinking about God in impersonal terms. He is a person. God the Father is a person. God the Son is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And when we talk about them having a relationship with one another, it was a real relationship. The Father and the Son had a real relationship, a love relationship. I mean, parents, you have children. You know what it's like. A real relationship. And a relationship for all eternity with a joy that never increased or decreased and was never interrupted, ever. Think of that. There's no increase, no decrease in this love and joy, no no interruptions until 2,000 years ago when the Son of God was hanging on a cross and the Father turned away and forsook Him because sin is so ugly and vile that when Jesus was made sin on the cross, the Father had to turn away, away from His Son, His only Son, whom he loved. He didn't just leave him, and I think it's important to note this. It doesn't just say that the Father left him, because in a sense he didn't really leave him, because God's omniscient, I mean, he's everywhere. But what I mean is he didn't just leave him in a way that a parent takes their son to college, drops him off, and then leaves, goes home. He didn't just leave him, he forsook him. In the same way that a parent who sees their only child drowning to death in a lake, but instead of going in to save them, turns and walks away, letting them perish, forsaking. I mean, do we, do we really believe this? I mean, do we think about this? This is what it cost. When we talk about being saved, I mean, this is what it cost. In closing, a few things by way of application. First of all, for those of us this morning who are Christians, I would just say this. Behold the love of God for you. Behold the love of God for you. Listen to Paul in Romans 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me just say it this way. Christian, it's an evil thing for you to doubt the love of God. It's an evil thing for you to doubt the love of God. Christ didn't die just quietly in a basement somewhere. God actually made him a public demonstration visibly to the world of his love for you. His heaviness setting in upon you. His darkness starting to cloud your heart. His Satan starting to whisper his lies in your ear, mocking you telling you that God could never really love a wretched failure like you are? Are you wondering if God really loves you? What do you do? Where are you going to find the answer? Paul says he looked to the cross. 
because God has demonstrated once for all in the greatest possible way imaginable His love for His people. He can't do anything more than what He's done to demonstrate His love for you. He's done it. The greatest thing He can do. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Secondly, I would say to the Christians here this morning that we need to be striving to be a Christ-centered people. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is that we need to learn to have the mindset that Paul himself had in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, for Paul, the cross wasn't just something that was in the past and something that he's kind of moved on from now as a Christian. And that's often how we think of it. You know, I'm saved now. I'm done with the cross. I've passed through that gate. And now I just, you know, I'm going on to other things. No, you never go on to other things. We never go on to other things. We always come back here, not just a historical fact for Paul, but it was a vital day-to-day reality in his life to keep his mind fixed on Christ crucified, and we need to be the same way. Again, he doesn't just say that the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's not what he says. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see that? He qualifies it. He thinks of the Son of God not just in an abstract way, but he thinks of the Son of God hanging on that cross for him. Loved me and gave himself up for me. So again, is some particular sin starting to gain a foothold in your life? Look to the cross, and that sin will go out the window real quick. You know, our biggest problem a lot of times when we're fighting with sin is we just we don't see the reality of the cross. I mean, we need to be praying like that hymn says, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Because when those scenes come before you in truth, that sin goes out the window. Is your heart starting to grow cold in your relationship with the Savior? Look to the cross and allow the love displayed there to quicken you in a fresh way. Is God calling you to go through the deep waters of suffering? Look to the cross, and you'll find the strength to endure any trial. In light of what Christ has suffered on your behalf, is any amount of 
little suffering that he calls us to go through really that big of a deal. And then lastly, the applications here for the non-Christians this morning. You know who you are. The Lord knows who you are. Some of you are sitting here right now just kind of wishing that I would get done already. You want to leave here as fast as you can so you can numb your mind with the things of this world. Don't think that God is going to hold you guiltless for thinking so lightly of what He endured to provide a way for you to be saved. It says this in the book of Hebrews, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Finally, you might be sitting there somewhat affected. Maybe you appreciate the message in a certain way, tickled your fancy a bit. And after all, you kind of like to be seen as a good religious person, so you don't mind sitting through a sermon on a Sunday morning. It doesn't really bother you all that much. But at the same time, you really don't see the point of it all either. I mean, you're a pretty good person, at least by other people's standards. You don't really see the need for this thing of the cross. It just seems kind of pointless. I mean, aren't you good enough on your own to get into heaven? Don't your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Let me just put it to you this way. Do you really think that God would have done what we heard about this morning if there was any other way possible for you to be saved? I mean, to even ask the question answers it. Do you really think that He would have gone through what He went through if there was any other way for you to be saved? The fact is, your sin is so bad and so worthy of punishment that the Son of God Himself had to endure what He did to make a way for you. And if you can hear that and you can still sit here this morning and think of your own self-righteousness as good enough to get you in, then you need to cry out to God before it's too late. God knows you better than you do. And God Himself is telling you that your only hope is the cross. Run and fall there. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. That's all I have.